Welcome to the Think Theism Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm grateful to all of the host sponsors, and it's been lovely to meet some of the faculty and students today. Um, I've been asked to speak about whether God cares about racial justice, and um, if by extension, should we care about racial justice? So let me give you a preview of my comments. Yes, God cares deeply about racial justice. And yes, we should care about racial justice. Sadly, sometimes we don't care about racial justice. So I'd like to explore in this talk why this is the case and suggest ways, both spiritual and practical, that we can think about this and bring ourselves into alignment with the will of God. So first, let me um, underscore the spiritual underpinnings for an anti-racist stance. The story of Christianity is a story of human frailty and divine redemption. Humankind strayed from God's will in the Garden of Eden and has since tried and failed to be good on our own. At best, we seek to do good in our own strength and fall short. And at worst, we rebel and try to do what we want, no matter who we hurt. Um, The consequences of these can both be disastrous and far-reaching. And so this is why we need a savior and why Christ came and died for our sins. When when scholars talk about racism, they ultimately discuss self-interest. And if we really think about that, that's selfishness, which is a sin. So whether you take a macroeconomic approach to understanding racist phenomena and argue that market considerations make uh, certain groups more economically threatening, especially during times of scarcity, or whether you take the um, internal approach and talk about how individual self-interest makes others appear to be threatening, or whether you believe in the role of narratives and myth-making to talk about how countries and groups have used the notion of storytelling to dehumanize other people. We can all see that this prejudice is rooted in some sense of vaunting of self that runs counter to Christ's call for his followers to deny themselves, to take up their cross daily, and to follow him. In the scripture, God calls out people for engaging in this type of selfish behavior even sometimes if it had the patina of righteousness. So let me share a couple of examples. Um, In Numbers chapter 12, Moses is still leading the children of Israel through the wilderness to the promised land. He's been assisted in his ministry efforts by his brother Aaron, who was high priest and his spokesman before Pharaoh, and by his sister Miriam. In Numbers chapter 12, Aaron and Miriam start to grumble that Moses has too much power, and they want to know why he, is the one of them that's in charge, because he's the youngest in the family. In an attempt to prove Moses' unworthiness, they raised the issue that Moses had married a Cushite woman. Now, in most African-American circles, we interpret Cushites to be African. In any case, she wasn't from the same tribe that they were. So in response to the grumbling and the character assassination, God punishes Miriam for her murmuring by striking her with leprosy. Now, to be sure, we don't know why Aaron received the same punishment, though the text does say that Aaron was very quick to ask for forgiveness after seeing what happened to his sister. So this passage is interesting for a number of reasons. When I was growing up, I learned that this was the passage that proved that interracial marriage was okay. Um, But today when I look at it, I see more. I look at the underlying issues that influenced Miriam and Aaron. They envied Moses' leadership position. They wanted some of his power. So what I take from this is that God takes issue with attempts to usurp power and with the invocation of race to try to jockey for some sort of social or political position. The New Testament also speaks to the idea that racial discrimination is wrong. Here, we can see how the use of narrative is used to justify racial discrimination and how God completely counters that. The book of Acts talks about how the early church developed in the wake of Jesus' resurrection. In chapter 10, God confronts the apostle Peter about his own prejudice. So keep in mind that in this time period, Christianity was considered a sect of Judaism. It wasn't a separate religion. The apostles all considered themselves to be observant Jews. Common to the practice of the day was the idea of separating oneself from Gentiles or non-Jews. One didn't socialize with Gentiles, and you likely didn't eat with Gentiles because their food was not kosher. 
There was a Gentile centurion named Cornelius, part of the Roman occupation, who had heard about this new Christian sect and was interested in learning more. He felt called by God to request a meeting with Peter. In preparation for this meeting, God spoke to Peter in a trance. He saw a vision of non-kosher food. So imagine a sheet or a tablecloth full of shrimp, crab, pork chops, pulled pork, whatever. God instructed Peter to eat, but Peter refused, citing Jewish dietary restrictions. God insisted that he eat, though, telling him not to call anything that he had cleansed unclean. Peter accepts the message, and soon after awaking from this dream, Cornelius' servants arrive to invite him to meet their boss. Before that trance, Peter probably would have rather been caught dead than go out hang out at a Gentile's house. But as he explained it to church leaders who questioned him after the fact... Um, He said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. There's an important lesson here about the difference between culture and custom and real Christianity. Theoretically speaking, Peter was initially opposed to the idea of interacting with Gentiles because of centuries-old proscriptions about such social mixing. To be sure, the Old Testament does warn the children of Israel about creating um, alliances uh, with pagan neighbors through marriage as a means of preserving the faith. But Peter's hesitation goes beyond the original proscription. He wasn't asked to marry someone who didn't share his faith. When When God calls Peter out on his prejudice, he's offering a corrective to human tradition here. And practically speaking, Peter's outreach to Cornelius opened the door for Christianity to spread among the Gentiles. The the Apostle Paul reiterates this principle in Galatians 3.28 when he says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think the biblical standard is clear here. The problem in America today is that we fall short of this standard. Part of it is the normal cycle of sanctification and maturity. Christians believe that when one becomes a Christian, The moment they accept that Christ died for their sins and was risen from the dead, they're saved and their fate is sealed in heaven. That's great, but it takes a lifetime to work out sanctification or this idea of being set apart for God. So we know that while 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, all things are passed away, behold, all things are become new, that that process is going to work itself out with fear and trembling over the course of the rest of this person's life. So if this is a process that one is going to have to work through for the rest of their lives, one has to be open to God pointing out the places where she may fall short of God's standard. And once those blind spots are pointed out, then a Christian should submit to God's grace and allow God to change her from the inside out. The challenge is being willing to be challenged. Sadly, too many American Christians are unwilling to engage in the deep, and uncomfortable work of racial reconciliation. Sure, we'll host an ethnic food night at our church, or since it's February, maybe we'll sing a Negro spiritual during Black History Month at church. And we'll talk earnestly about how Christ unites us and that that's all that we need to get through our differences. That's not enough, unfortunately, to do real reconciliation. And frankly, I think we as a church adopt that superficial posture because we really don't want to address these types of issues. We lull ourselves into thinking that we don't have more work to do. Then our churches remain divided, and we have a hard time witnessing to others because we come across as a little hypocritical. So what would I prescribe? Let me be clear. I don't begrudge anybody in here their European ancestry or if they happen to have it, their wealth. However, I do want to challenge a notion prevalent in American Christian communities that we want to stop seeing color so that we can get past racism. So let me show you evidence that this is, in fact, a problem. In the wake of uh, the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, Christianity Today reposted findings from a study um, conducted by Michael Emerson, then of Rice University, and David Sickink of Notre Dame. Uh, This survey is from the Portraits of American Life study, collected data on black and white Christians' attitudes towards race in 2006 and in 2012. The findings were troubling. In both 2006 and 2012, white evangelicals were twice as likely as black evangelicals to support the idea that the best way to get past race was to not talk about race. That in and of itself is not surprising. 
If we look at general data on racial attitudes, it's not surprising for blacks and whites to just see the world completely differently. But what is interesting is the growing prevalence of the idea. Um, in 2006, nearly a quarter of, of blacks believed in not talking about race anymore. And this grows to about a third um, in 2012. However, an increasingly higher proportion of white evangelicals subscribed to this idea in 2012 over 2006. So whereas only half of white evangelicals subscribed to this notion of colorblindness in 2006, more than two-thirds embraced colorblindness by 2012. The response to the next question is also telling. In 2006, about a fifth of black and white evangelicals supported the notion of separate versus equal, an idea, mind you, that was overturned by the Supreme Court in Brown versus Board of Education more than 60 years ago. By 2012, a slightly smaller proportion of blacks subscribed to this notion of separate but equal. However, the number of white evangelicals subscribing to this notion increases by about 70% from 2006 to 2012. These are the kinds of figures that cause sociologists like Eduardo Bonilla Silva to point out that calls for colorblindness are often subterfuges for perpetuating a racist status quo. This is not dealing with issues, and it does absolutely nothing to promote reconciliation. More recent data corroborates the fact that perpetual gulfs remain in the church along racial issues. At Emory, I direct the James Weldon Johnson Institute. It's a center for the study of race and difference. This past fall, we conducted a survey um, just as the 2000 election was taking place. So let me tell you a little bit about this survey. So our survey was an online sample that was fielded by uh, Qualtrics, did it the day before the election and on election day up to seven o'clock Eastern time when polls would start to close in the United States. Overall, my sample has um, close to 3,200 respondents. It's all in English um, and it includes oversamples of minority Republicans, millennials, um, and white evangelicals. So today what I'm going to talk about is the evangelical portion of the data. So that's a sample of just over a thousand people. It's about a little more than half white and half non-white. So the data that I'm going to present today is currently unweighted. So if you ever see this published and it looks a little different, it's because I've added a weight later to it. So those of you who are statisticians will understand what I'm talking about. As this is presented right now though, because of my oversample of Republicans, these are actually probably somewhat more conservative estimates though. All right, so look at some of these differences that we can see here. So when we ask questions about favorability of certain groups, so the same way we could ask this about politicians, which we do do in the survey, we ask how people feel about certain groups. And we see some things that are troubling, not just for white Christians, I mind you. So if we look at um, attitudes toward Black Lives Matter, a little more than half of non-white evangelicals reported having favorable or somewhat favorable opinions of Black Lives Matter. That compares to only about 36% of white evangelicals. Um, in, 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 in contrast, if you ask what one's opinion is of police officers, about two-thirds of non-white evangelicals had favorable or somewhat favorable views of police compared to nearly 86% of white evangelicals. Um, we see differences um, amongst non-white and white evangelicals in terms of perceptions of illegal or undocumented immigrants um, and uh, nearly identical attitudes towards Syrian refugees. But one of the things to point out is that amongst all evangelical Christians, regardless of their race, that fewer than half of all evangelical Christians perceived these groups in a favorable light. All right, I also asked a series of questions related to policing and how people perceived confidence in police. And again, we see these big racial differences. So um, white evangelicals are much more trusting of the, of the police. They believe that police are held accountable for their misconduct, that police are adequately trained to avoid excessive force, that police in this country try hard to main maintain good relationships with different communities, and that police in this country treat blacks and whites equally. And as you can see, minority Christians don't believe this. Um, at ne to, to nearly the same degree. All right, so we also ask questions that are based on standard racial resentment uh, uh, batteries. So a standard racial resentment battery is something that asks a question kind of inobtrusively because most people won't answer the question, are you racist to your face? <laughs> so these questions actually are questions about whether or not people sort of have views about blacks not working hard and trying to explain why blacks may lag behind whites um, in many socioeconomic indicators. So some of them are uh, 
are worded positively and some of them are, are worded negatively. And again, in all these groups, we see these huge differences between white and non-white evangelicals. So um, non-white evangelicals are more likely to believe that blacks have gotten less than they deserve over the past three years. Um, they're more likely to explain um, impediments to black advancement as a function of generations of slavery and discrimination. Um, they are less likely to subscribe to the belief that if blacks just tried harder, they'd get ahead. Um, and they are less likely to subscribe to the idea that because white ethnic groups came to this country and managed to succeed, that blacks could do the same thing. I added a few more new things to the battery that are more contemporary. So if we ask the question about whether or not immigrants coming to this country take jobs, majority of white evangelicals agreed, um, uh, strongly or somewhat, compared to only about 34% of non-white evangelicals. And then if we ask this question about people being concerned with being politically correct, most evangelicals said yes, but you still see big, a 15-point percentage gap amongst white and non-white evangelicals. All right. Then I'm testing out this new battery. So it's a question of how do people define racism? And so here, and there are a few other places that I could talk about in the Q&A, you don't see differences. So there are also some policy differences, say, for instance, uh, body cameras for police where white and non-white evangelicals tend to agree on things. And we also see that there's a lot of convergence on the identification of obvious forms of racism. So they're given a list of things where they're asked to say whether or not something is definitely racist, probably racist, maybe, maybe not, not racist, or definitely not racist. And so here are the responses for people who said that an action would be definitely or probably racist. So majorities of white and non-white evangelicals agree that things like using racial slurs, segregating public facilities, denying someone service in a store because of their race, or physically attacking somebody because of their race are racist. However, we're going to see the same type of divergence when we start to talk about um, more implicit forms of bias and things that might be more structural and systemic, where people have a hard time um, sort of distinguishing what the potential racial effects may be. So for instance, um, only 48% of white evangelicals thought that racial profiling by police was definitely or probably racist, compared to nearly 63% of non-white evangelicals. 58% of non-white evangelicals thought questioning President Obama's citizenship was definitely or probably racist, compared to 36% of white evangelicals. Um, and looking at structural things like environmental racism, uh, lack of transportation, food deserts, we also see differences even though um, majorities of evangelicals of all stripes were less likely to identify these things as racist. So for instance, um, we see an 11-point gap amongst uh, non-white and white evangelicals about the idea that uh, not providing public transportation in poor communities would be um, an example of something that was definitely or probably racist. Uh, we see a 16-point gap um, on things about uh, environmental racism, so the idea of landfills going into poor communities perhaps being racist. And then also, so this is the Flint example, a 14-percentage-point gap in talking about making decisions which lead to things like lead poisoning and water and soil. So we still see these differences in people not always recognizing things that have racial undercurrents to them and that disproportionately affect people of color being, in fact, racist. All right, so why is this important? It suggests that Christians are not walking alongside each other and that they're letting their own narrow set of experiences dictate their empathy. Whites don't see the ways that police violence is perceived as a threat in black and brown communities. And most Christians of all stripes are finding it hard to relate to refugees and the undocumented. I'm not trying to shape your political views on these issues, but I will challenge you to think about the ways that these stances could be perceived as callous and how that hinders our witness and minimizes the positive impact of our ministry. So what do we do as a result of this? Some of this is born of ignorance. As it says in Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So now you know, um, and you don't have an excuse anymore to not know that these cleavages exist. You've heard tonight that people's lived experiences give them different perspectives, and you're at a great institution where you have the opportunity to take classes to learn about things like systemic racism and structural inequality. So please take advantage of the privilege of the resources that are here and take the opportunity to learn more. Then apply that knowledge in your daily and your ministry lives. 
um, before you vote against that next tax initiative that may provide transportation or libraries in underserved communities, think about the residual effects of income and wealth inequality and residential segregation. Challenge friends, neighbors, and even family who say racist things, even if it's wrapped in the facade of colorblindness. Don't accept the ministerial status quo of superficial outreach events where majority communities do for the disadvantaged without hearing and understanding their needs or empowering them to help determine their own fate, or where they drop in and really don't stay and develop relationships with the people that they serve. I'd like to end on a positive note. I don't want anyone to leave here depressed about the state of the church or about the prospect that it'll take eons for the racist to reconcile. Yes, some Christians have huge blind spots about these issues, and some of them have no desire to do better. But I believe that God has brought you here because you do want to do better. Um, and I believe that it's God's grace working in you, if you'll allow it, by accepting the redemption of Christ purchased at Calvary, that can help you make a difference in your own small way by dealing with these issues in a meaningful way. The same way that racism developed in this world because people tried to abide in something other than God, I believe that we can help diminish racism's grip on our world by remembering Jesus' admonition to abide in him. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Gillespie. Uh, my name is Randy Kluver. I'm professor of communication, and it is my honor to uh, feed you uh, some, some questions tonight. Um, you've been given cards to write questions. If you have some, there are some volunteers in the, the aisles. They'll take your cards and bring them up to us. Also, you have the option of tweeting any questions you might have for Dr. Gillespie. But while we're waiting, I would love to, uh, to start a little bit. Um, in the beginning of your talk, you talked a little bit about the, um, the scriptural issues related to understanding race. Um, but you raised this interesting tension uh -huh. that um, historically, people have used the Bible to justify slavery. Uh -huh. They've used uh, the Bible to justify all kinds of horrific uh, social injustices. Can you help us get our head around that? How can the same scripture that is used for, uh, in, in your case, to, to justify an anti-racist stance also be used for, uh, for, for, the, for the exact opposite. Well, I mean, I think sometimes people take um, scripture or they'll take dogma and they can twist it for their own benefits. And we see examples of this in the scripture where people, you know, want to embrace uh, God or they want to embrace Jesus for their own power trip. So, you know, I'm thinking about um, Simon the magician who is, is attracted to the miracles. And so he's like, ooh, I get to be a better magician like this. And he has to get rebuked for that. So the idea that people could take uh, Jesus and try to twist him into something to fit their own self-interest is, 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 you know, is, is real and it's something that's been operating in, and since the world began. Um, I think when we see how um, uh, Christianity operated to justify slavery, part of the reason why it operated to justify slavery was that people created these narratives to talk about why uh, blacks in particular could be enslaved. So, you know, I could think about from a more secular perspective, Thomas Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia where he describes blacks as childlike and smelly and um, other things that would be worthy of enslavement. But what other people did was say that blacks were subhuman and had no souls. Or they talked about this from a missional perspective and said by enslaving these people, we're able to teach them Christianity. Um, and so people weren't interrogating their own problems or how if you could name the name of Christ, even if you accepted slavery, and slavery was a common cultural practice in the ancient world, how in the American context, you could do things like, you know, rape your slaves to make more of them, right? Um, because even if you were gonna believe in that, my Bible says fornication is a sin, and so if you're sleeping with your female slave and not your wife, that's a problem, right? And then it's rape on top of that, and the Old Testament says you could die for that. So people are often selective. I mean, even in today's day and age, people are selective in the scriptures that they use because people are inherently selfish and people want to do things their own way. They don't necessarily want to fall under the submission of God. Based on um, your talk so far, I think uh, I was following the, the tweets, the live tweets of uh, your talk, and uh, you presented some pretty um, difficult statistics mm -hmm. for white evangelicals like myself to deal with mm -hmm. in terms of thinking about attitudes. Uh, generally speaking, uh, is it the perception of the, the black church that the white church is of no help at all when it comes to combating racism? You know, I, I think people have gotten very comfortable in staying in their own camps. And so you don't always see efforts to be cross-cultural. 
Um, and then there are times when there have been cross-cultural efforts and there have been many misunderstandings about things. So um, my childhood pastor growing up uh, came back to his hometown area. It was Petersburg, Virginia, so it's the Richmond metropolitan area. Um, and he wanted to start a cross-cultural ministry. And he reached out to white pastors in Richmond in the early 1970s, and they were like, no, one won't be bothered. So, um, you know, so I grew up in a storefront church with one white family. Um, so, you know, those things happen. And so, like, once he got rebuffed in the 70s, by the time, you know, I'm growing up in the 80s, there was no talk about that because he had already been burned in those types of situations. Um, then I think sometimes there have to be efforts of paternalism. So, you know, I've considered going to churches that are explicitly cross-cultural in their mission, and I have to admit I, I pay attention to what the demographics of the leadership look like. And there are some churches with, you know, very heavily minority congregations, but the leadership staff looks really white, and that's kind of weird. Um, and so it's like if you're cross-cultural, then you should be intentional in terms of your leadership and in terms of the descriptive makeup of, of that body as well. So there are things that, that, that people get wrong. Um, then also, I, you know, there are certain cultural practices um, that emerge as a result of segregation that are rich that people buy into. And so sometimes people say resort to the black church because it's a place of comfort. It's a place of safety. So especially if you've had to live in the world for the week, this is a place where you don't have to think about that for a little bit. And so it becomes a question of, especially as churches integrate, um, and this is something I'm thinking a lot by a, a, a mainline uh, minister, her name is Jennifer Harvey at Drake University, about when people talk about reconciliation, about are we talking about assimilation and who loses out in those types of discussions as well. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. We've got a question from the audience. What do you see as the church's role in secular movements such as Black Lives Matter? Um, so, you know, um, Black Lives Matter is a secular movement, and it's decidedly secular in part because it wants to challenge the hierarchies that were in place uh, during the civil rights movement. And so uh, uh, people who are actively organizing in Black Lives Matter have taken African-American history classes and social movement classes and politics classes. And so they know the shortcomings of the civil rights movement, um, that you know, men were the front of the movement, women did all the work, and people didn't give the women credit for things, and other groups that were marginalized even within the African-American community. Um, and so they are intentional in making sure that they're broad-based. And so, you know, sometimes Christians are uncomfortable um, with some of, 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 of that outreach, but I would encourage them to not be. So, you know, for instance, if, you know, abortion came up, like if, if they're going to march in an, a, a pro, an explicitly pro-abortion rally, so I'm not talking about the women's march, but a, a, an explicitly pro-abortion rally, okay then. So that's not a place where many evangelicals are going to feel comfortable because their values uh, dictate a different stance on that particular issue. But um, there's, I, I don't see what, what the argument or the dispute is about marching against somebody shooting an unarmed black person. I mean, so, I mean, you know, People form alliances all the time, and so I take the, the, the view of the Congressional Black Caucus that there are no permanent friends or permanent enemies, they're just permanent interests. And so I think that people can be selective in terms of their engagement and take a stand about certain things. So if you, you know, are not supporting, not necessarily Black Lives Matter, because Black Lives Matter is very diffuse, but the cause against police brutality, because uh, you don't like some of the political stands, the additional political stands of some of the members of the movement, I, I would challenge you to, to see what the real point is that they're talking about and figure out where the places of common ground are. So we come together around uh, a desire for justice uh, rather than permanent allies, as you said. Permanent said, allies. And there are you know, issues that are specific. So if people are going to be talking about, um, mm -hmm. you know, if people are going to be talking about police brutality, if you know, in a local community people want the creation of a citizen's review board, if people are talking about you know, eradicating lead from water, like there is lots of stuff that's going on that has nothing to do with a handful of social issues. You can join forces on that stuff. Um, and if you need to separate yourself from certain individual social issues, that's fine. But you know, one of the things having um, talked, you know, very, very briefly, not deeply, with people from Black Lives Matter. There are folks in the movement who, you know, are definitely have no connection to the church at all. And then there are some who are in the movement who grew up in the church and have been very hurt by the hypocrisy in the church. And so those are missed opportunities to be able to minister to people. Um, and so I would encourage you to figure out the places of common ground to be able to work, because I think there's some people who have a misconception of Christianity because they saw very bad representations of it when they were children.
The data that you showed um, related to how people perceive police, how people perceive all kinds of social issues, mm -hmm. um, I think in some ways is underlined by an, underli uh, an attitude that is um, brought up in one of these questions. What do you, how do you help people uh, understand that many of the problems that the black community faces are not self-caused? Right. I mean, so part of that is the narrative. Like some of the narratives that existed to justify slavery in the 19th century still manifest themselves today. So the new form of that would be to talk about the culture of poverty. So if you want to talk about like why blacks tend to make less money, um, why they have less wealth, it's easy to go to they don't work hard enough when actually there's some other reasons that one would have to think about. So one of the reasons why wealth inequalities are the way that they are is that most people derive their wealth through the value of their home. Black communities, you know, in the 30s and 40s were redlined. Um, when uh, the Federal Housing Authority um, was developing, when VA loans were being developed, they wouldn't give money in urban communities where blacks tended to live because they wanted to promote suburbanization and single-family houses with yards, and that disproportionately affected blacks. And so that actually depresses the ability to, for houses to appreciate in black communities, leaving them less well-off than houses in white communities. So this has absolutely nothing to do with people not working hard. These are structural reasons why you see these differences. Um, and so I think if people were open to the idea that not everything is the result of individual effort, but that when we observe things from a, a 20,000 foot view and we can see macro trends, that there may be something else going on there as opposed to saying an entire group of over 40 million people is lazy. Um, like that, like, I mean, I think we have to be very, very careful about making those types um, of generalizations. Okay. I think um, several folks are, are commenting upon your, your comments toward the end about the church's role in, in racial reconciliation. I've got two questions. I'm going to try to merge okay. them together here. Um, speak a little bit about the lack of diversity in the modern church. And uh, the question is both at church's level, the churches as well as the parachurch ministries. Okay. Um, what's the best model? Is it better to, to do a, okay, everybody comes together? Or is it better to, as some ministries do, follow explicitly racial lines? Right. I mean, so, you know, one of the interesting things about the American evangelical church from a macro standpoint is that, um, you know, overall, as a share of the population, the number of people who identify as evangelicals is declining. Um, the number of people who identify as mainline Protestant um, is declining. And the only reason why evangelicals aren't declining at the same rate as mainline Protestants is because people of color are more likely to identify as Christian. And I think that's a really important thing to kind of keep um, in mind, that in all honesty, it is minorities, it is Latinos, it is immigrants who are helping to keep the American church alive. Um, and perhaps as we're thinking about how we organize our churches and our seminaries and the things that we train people in doing, we should be mindful of the important role that people of color are actually playing in the church and to be sensitive to those needs and not assume that just because you might share the same denomination that you have the same uh, views on everything or the same values or you place the same emphasis on um, the same types of, of issues. Um, you know, the parachurch question is interesting. So when I was in college, um, I was part of InterVarsity, and I'm still part of InterVarsity today. Awesome. <laughs> and um, so I remember in the 90s when they started to create those race-specific fellowships, and it was in part because of people like me who complained that there was too much acoustic guitar at large group, and I was sick of it. <laughs> um, and I confess that I was the girl who sang Negro spirituals once on um, one like Friday so I could hear music that I wanted to listen to in church. Um, you know, you know I, I look back on that in hindsight and I see the value of creating spaces where people feel com comfortable expressing their cultural selves. So I don't want to diminish that. Um, but I do see the um, idea of being able to promote unity. So when I say we shouldn't have superficial unity, you shouldn't just like force everybody to have a joint meeting together and then they kind of all go back to their corners. Part of the reason why it doesn't always gel all that well is that people don't get to know people all that well. And they're not necessarily listening to, the st to, to people's stories or understanding where they came from. Um, and if that hard work is being done, then we might see that you will see more fully integrated, um, fully integrated groups. Um, one of the things that was working really well as I was leaving college in the late 1990s was that the groups still remained distinct, but there were groups of people within each of the groups that came together for common projects. 
and especially the leadership team to help to organize those activities, they really did develop these strong bonds with one another. They really did become each other's brothers and sisters. You could tell that people were praying for each other. I mean, in some instances, I think it actually positively impacted the trajectory of their lives in terms of how they chose to live their lives, the communities that they chose to live in um, once they finished school. Um, and I think that forged as a result of working together in community on, on projects of common concern so that people could get to know one another. That's probably a good first step. It's something deeper. It was a longer project. It wasn't like a weekend type of thing. It was something that they would have to work on over the course of a semester or a school year. And just from a practical standpoint, it was, it, it was really helpful. But so what we want to get past is, you know, you've got that one black person in the fellowship or that one Asian person or that one uh, Latino person. And, um, you know, you never ask them any questions about themselves. You always assume that their life is the same as yours or you make some really crazy gross generalization. So I remember one time um, I was on a missions project um, in college. We were in an urban area and somebody asked if, if I had grown up in an inner city. And I was like, no, I didn't, okay? Um, and it was one of those, I have to have grace. So I was like, okay, how do I respond to this? I did feel like I can't yell, kind of want to. Um, but, I, you know, like, like it, it, it's those types of assumptions. Like, no, not all black people are poor, even though I really wasn't rich, um, like by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but like, yeah, those kinds of misconceptions that are, are out there. Um, you know, on the one hand, I was really annoyed that she asked the question. And I, I didn't have the capacity at that stage in my life to kind of sit and have a deep conversation to kind of educate her past that. But you know what? I'm glad that she asked that. And sometimes it may take people asking some really ignorant questions and understanding that it's going to be gracious to you to say that was really stupid and let me explain why and kind of go through the paces of why like, you shouldn't think that to perhaps get some people out of that mindset. So let me ask a totally unscripted question, okay? So those of us in Ratio Christi, Christian Faculty Network, we tend to be very cerebral in our faith. We tend to come to Christ. It makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. to us. We got lots of reasoning. But all of us at some point say, God gripped our heart at some point. God changed us. God changed and, and really picked us up, shook us, and set us down again. Is there a moment like that where you've seen that as, as white Christians, as black Christians, really dealt with this issue of racism as sin? And you've seen transformation in, in a powerful, powerful way. So I would say probably personally, I haven't seen it. Um, yeah, it doesn't mean that I don't think that it's out there. Um, there's a story, and I'm kind of telling you a little bit about it, sight unseen, um, that you might be able to check on Facebook um, at the Martin Luther King Center. So um, um, on MLK Day, um, this, uh, this past month, uh, Bernice King, who's the, uh, Martin Luther King's daughter and the director of, 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 the, of the King Center, uh, put on a program where she invited different people from different walks of life to come talk about their experiences. So I know one of the people on the panel was a former member of the Ku Klux Klan, who um, from the little bit that I've heard of the story, I think had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, came away from the Klan, and has now devoted himself to trying to convince people to leave the Klan. Um, my sense from the story is like so, so I haven't quite heard the story yet, is that he's being motivated by his faith to do that, that he came to a point where he just has this awakening that, you know, um, that, that, that there's neither Jew nor Greek um, in Christianity, and that what he was doing was wrong, and that whatever he thought he was preserving in terms of Christianity was, was false. Um, so there are definitely places where I think that we've seen that. Sometimes, you know, I know people who love Jesus with all their heart, um, and sometimes just because of their upbringing and because of the culture in which they were raised, feel comfortable saying things. And so I think that it may not be kind of an epiphany, but it's that moment of interacting with somebody who says, that's not acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, and let me explain to you why this is not acceptable. Um, and, you know, sometimes their hearts are open to receiving that, sometimes they're not. But I think that people are changed by having those types of interactions with people. Mm. It, it saddens me to hear you say that, you know, you're speaking on this, and this is your, an area of, of, of interest yeah. and passion for you, and, and yet you haven't really seen that thing happen. And it, it speaks to the deep, deep-seated nature of these attitudes. So we do have a Twitter question. Okay. Um, and I'm using a paper card to read it. Um, <laughs> so I'm old school, folks. Um, does being Christian and focusing on these issues of reconciliation mean for blacks to disregard the pride 
we have in our history, obviously. This is not my question, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, what does it mean for... <laughs> so, let me read it out as it was written, okay? Does being Christian and developing, focusing on rec reconciliation mean for us as blacks to disregard the pride we have in our history? Um, no. I think there's a difference between pride and nationalism. And, and so let me be clear, sort of as somebody who studies African-American studies and we talk about black nationalism, there's a big difference between white nationalism and black nationalism. Um, and there are some manifestations of black nationalism that I would say are tantamount to white nationalism and problematic. But oftentimes when people talk about certain issues related to black nationalism, what they're talking about are self-determination, the idea that people should be able to uh, have say in their communities and be able to choose their own destiny, that they should be able to have cultural pride in their heritage um, and other kinds of things. I don't think that those are necessarily problematic you know, by any stretch of the imagination. So I don't want white people to feel bad because they're white. Um, these racial categories are socially inscribed, they're legally inscribed now, but they're social constructs. And so people have heritages, people have traditions, those things should, should be honored. The parts that shouldn't be honored are the parts that say that I am better than you because I have this particular heritage. That's what's gotten us into, in, in, into trouble. I think God created us diverse for a reason. I think he likes the diversity. I think he likes the different cultural expressions. And so it's neat, especially in the body of Christ when this is working well, to see people praise God through their cultural lens, but it's very clear that they're all worshiping the same God. So it wouldn't be fun if we were all homogenous. And the other part of that that's problematic, and this is maybe why I had my own kind of personal awakening in college, is that when people talk about coming together, oftentimes that means for those who are from the minority groups that they end up having to accede to the dominant culture as opposed to the dominant culture picking up anything that's not appropriated and sort of saying that they're actually learning from. Um, from, from other groups. So, I, you know, so I think that whatever culture it is that you come from, I think God values that and God likes that cultural expression and that you don't have to hide that, you know, in order to be part of an interracial community. Thank you. So that's, that's great. Uh, this, this question, I'm, I'm scared of your answer. Okay. Have you seen, um, I'm really scared of your answer, okay. Have you seen white evangelicals' attitudes on race improve in any way in the last 20 years? So I'm... So, this is why I'm scared of your answer. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I primarily study race and politics in a secular context, so I have an interest in evangelical politics. So I, there are people who study this um, more deeply than, than, than I have. I think that, you know, there's definitely lip service paid to racial reconciliation. I think that there is a recognition, you know, that there are certain things that you can and can't do. Um, or that shouldn't be done and that are wrong. Um, there have even been places where people have apologized, say, for their silence during the civil rights movement. And I think that those things are helpful. I wouldn't you know, say that they were, were, were bad. Um, this is an interesting moment, and so I think that it's, it, it's really hard to see. So yeah, I mean, you know, there are some churches that 20 years ago would have been you know, 80, 90% white that aren't anymore. Um, that's, you know, that's progress. I'm not gonna say that that's, that's not progress. Um, you will see people, you know, making steps to, you know, reach out and to be more inclusive and to be more intentional and to be mindful of those things. So that is progress. Um, you know, I think right now there's, this is a real kind of tense moment. So if we look, for instance, at the last election, and there were already differences in terms of how white and non-white evangelicals voted. So like when we think about evangelicals being a strong Republican voting bloc, it's about white evangelicals. It really wasn't about minorities because minorities, even Christians, were more likely to vote Democratic. Um, but I think it was really hard to see those numbers in this particular election given the racial rhetoric that was used in the election. And so I think it was a shock to see that 80% number uh, 81% number come out in this particular election. And so I think for some, that does raise a certain level of suspicion and I think it does get people's guards up. Um, and I think we need to talk through this because I could have changed some of this and I've done sort of versions of running these numbers before where you know we just put red and blue in and we see the same types of differences in perception. Um, and so and, you know, as we do the models, we'll see exactly what's predicting um, you know, support for, for various candidates. Um, and this is not to malign anybody's vote choice, but I think some people see that given the issues that have been raised in the last couple of years, and I think that that reinforces the notion 
that there's a certain tone deafness in the church that I think you know we still have to overcome. Um, the data that you presented was was interesting, if troubling. Mm -hmm. Did you break it down by region, by region of the country, or or is that not yet? Not still yet. cleaning it. So okay. we look forward to seeing that. Yeah. Um, here's another question, Dr. Gillespie. I've learned in class that race is a social construct. If this is true. How can I change the label I put on people of different ethnicities? Should I continue to call people white or black or Asian? Mm -hmm. So race is a social construct in that it's made up. So if we look at everybody's DNA, all of our DNAs is 99% you know, the same. Um, so that's the part that's socially constructed. Now, the people who invented anthropology didn't believe that, and so that's how we got the racial groups that we got and certain dumb ideas about head size, predicting intelligence. Um, but just because it's a social construct doesn't mean that it doesn't have meaning. So it has been operating in our world for a few centuries now, even before anthropology was inventing, invented. And now, because it's tied to cultural practices and other kinds of things, it's gonna be really hard to disentangle. And in the United States, you know, the OMB has a list of who gets classified where. So for instance, if you start writing certain things down on your census form, um, like I'm Italian, like cause you won't check white, the Census Bureau will just put you in that category anyway. Um, so um, there are legal cases uh, where the Supreme Court had to weigh in to decide a person's race. So for instance, you know, there's a case in Mississippi where you have a segregated school system and you know, it's black and white and you have Asian families and they didn't know where to go but they knew which school was inferior. Um, you know, there were cases about whether or not Armenians were white so it's the Supreme Court that said that Kim Kardashian was white. Um, like, I'm not kidding. So, um, yeah, so we can't pretend. So yes, while this thing is completely made up, it has social, legal, economic weight. So we would be remiss to ignore these things. So, you know, this is not, and, so, and I think this is the issue of colorblindness, is that people will be like, oh, I don't want to see color. But everybody else does. And so you have to kind of keep that in mind and that that has ramifications for predicting a person's life chances. Um, earlier you mentioned uh, what's really been a difficult time for our country. This last election was, I think, divisive in tremendous ways and, and we're all still trying to, to deal with that. Uh, the, the last question I want to ask you really has to do with uh, the partisanship mm -hmm. and the deep, deep divisions that um, are not just felt on, along racial lines, mm -hmm. but in many other ways. How do we as Christians bring reconciliation um, across party differences, across racial differences, across all these ways, all these fault lines that were exposed in our society in this last election? So sometimes I think it's going to take a deep honesty, honesty and reflection about what motivates us to do certain things. Um, and it's part of the reason why surveys are helpful because sometimes you ask questions and then we can see if people answer the certain questions in the same way so that we can see exactly what's motivating certain types of decisions. People's vote choices were complex. Um, you know, some people were voting for party lines because they're loyal to a particular party. Um, some people were voting for candidates because they really didn't like the other person. Um, some people were voting because of racial animus, and they may not admit it, but there are ways that social scientists can figure out sort of whether or not that was true. You know, some people were voting for the future of the Supreme Court. Um, and so probably what I would challenge people to do in terms of thinking about this is to be honest with yourself about why you voted the way that you did, um, and then to ask yourself whether or not that motivation, um, one, thought about all angles of the issue, and then to whether or not that was actually motivated in you know, obedience to God. And I can't make that decision for you. Um, if I would say this to um, uh, those in the audience who did support Donald Trump, um, now that the Supreme Court issue is temporarily settled until the next retirement, I mean, one of the things I would caution with for the Supreme Court issue is that um, right now Gorsuch, who I assume will get in, it's probably not going to really change the dynamic of the court because it's just one conservative replacing another conservative. And that judges have the ability to change over time. And that judges do respond to changes in public opinion so we don't know what Gorsuch will be like 20 years from now. Um, is to use that capital as the most loyal Republican voting block, 
to talk about some of these issues that your brothers and sisters of color care about. So, you know, when many African Americans heard President Trump and other Republicans shouting law and order, law and order, law and order, that didn't say we support the cops and we want to do right by communities of color. That's an old code word that Richard Nixon used in the late 1960s to talk about getting blacks who were rioting back in control. Right? So it hurts, people heard something totally different. Um, I was in Cleveland, and so when I heard those Blue Lives Matter chants, it kind of shook me. Right? And this is somebody who supports cops. Um, I don't support cops who shoot people. Un, you know, unnecessarily, but I support cops. I don't have a problem calling the police if I need to, and I you know, am happy to live a couple blocks away from my police station. Um, like to see them in my community. Um, but when I hear or I see Blue Lives Matter, it seems like that's at the expense of Black Lives Matter. And when people said Black Lives Matter, they weren't saying that everybody else didn't matter. What they were saying was Blacks appear to be more likely to be targeted for racial profiling, to be targeted for this type of violence. And we want black lives to matter as much as everybody else's life matters. So don't play rhetorical points with this just so you can rally up you know, a certain part of the base that doesn't want to sort of hear this or accept the fact that black people live here or the fact that Barack Obama was president. So, like, so there needs to be greater sensitivity. And President Trump's probably not gonna listen to me um, because I've written stuff that says that I disagree with him. <laughs> but he might listen to some of y'all. So take that and use it as leverage and say, you know what, not on our votes and not on our watch. And the next time he runs a campaign where he starts off maligning Mexicans and saying stuff, say this is completely unacceptable and threaten to withhold your vote to get him to behave and to fire people who are spouting that type of nonsense in his administration. So. Thanks. Thanks very much. I, I think many of us, I was, I was following the Twitter feed, and a lot of us were saying, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. You know, it was, your, your statistics, your, your points were, were very well um, taken tonight. So thank you for being here with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Finally, on behalf of the Christian Faculty Network and Rachel Christie, I want to personally thank you all for attending tonight. Uh, our hope and prayer is that uh, God has used Dr. Gillespie to challenge you to take seriously the scriptural command to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Thank you very, very much, Dr. Gillespie. Thank you. Please join me in thanking him. For more information about the Veritas Forum, including additional recordings and a calendar of upcoming events, please visit our website at veritas.org.